Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S., and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast, and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. I'd like to start off with a fairly long scripture reading, and if you are able uh, to rise while we read it, please do so. The familiar story of Jesus meeting a woman in Samaria, and we start with the next slide then, please. Jesus had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift of God uh, that God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, Give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here and get water. Oh, go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me. Why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place to worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshipped? Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship Him that way, for God is spirit. So those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When He comes, He will explain everything to us. And Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. 
Just then his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her, or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's start with food. Everybody likes food, right? <laughs> because early on, we see the disciples had gone to Giant. Uh, maybe it was wise, but they went shopping. And they came back, and that's where we have their reaction. And I think we need to talk about how they reacted before we talk about the reasons for it. You notice the disciples didn't say something like, uh, doesn't he know what he's doing? No, it was more like, he knows exactly what he's doing. You know, this, this is uh, no surprise to, to Jesus, but a big surprise to everybody else. I mean, they're in Samaria. This is Samaritan. This is a woman drawing water at lunchtime when it's hot. That's not when you drew water, but if you wanted to avoid all the other women in the village, that's when you did it. So, one reason I use the New Living Translation instead of the NIV, which I normally use, is the NIV says the disciples came back and were surprised. Nah, the Greek word is much stronger than that. It's shocked is a better translation, and it implies they were in a state of continuing shock. This was something they just could not believe. No Jewish man, especially a rabbi, would be caught dead talking with a woman like that in public. And so the disciples had a hard time with that. Now, who were these Samaritans? Well, we know the story of the exile in the Old Testament. When Assyrians took over, a lot of the Jews were basically taken away from their land to Babylon and nearby places. The Jews who were left in what they called Samaria now intermarried with Assyrians who came in from elsewhere. So the Samaritans were mixed race or ethnic group, but more importantly, perhaps, they were mixed religion. They only used what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books of, of the Bible, of uh, the Torah, and they ignored anything, especially that referred to a temple in Jerusalem. Why? They built their own temple about 400 BC, and they had that for some time until the Jews destroyed it <laughs> in 128 BC. That did not help the relationships. Um, so you think, wow, you know, why did they just use that kind of Bible? Well, you know, it's not the only people in history who have just taken the parts of the Bible they like and ignored the rest. Thomas Jefferson did that. It's a very famous story. If you look at the Thomas Jefferson Bible, he took his scissors and cut out all the things like miracles and references to the deity of Jesus, and his Bible was just what he liked. Well, that's basically what the Samaritans did. And so John, the author, comments, the Jews refused to have anything to do with the Samaritans. Strict Jews would walk around Samaria. You see the map? We're talking about Galilee to Judea. And Samaria is in the middle. Now, if you're going to walk around Samaria, you've got to cross the Jordan in Galilee and come down and cross the Jordan again to Judea. And it took you about twice as long and I don't know what the ferry fee was across the Jordan, but, you know, why do that? That's how much strict Jews wanted to avoid any contact with Samaritans. Now, 
we, we have this problem then. Jesus is talking with this woman, and the disciples just can't kind of quite handle this. Um, where John makes this comment about Jews don't have any relationships with Samaritans, it's after the reference to a drink. Now, Jesus asks her for a drink. He's a Jew asking an unclean Samaritan for a drink. And that raises all sorts of questions for a normal, pious Jew. Not a problem for Jesus. Now, we'll come back to the ethnic tension a little later, but let's talk about the gender stuff. Um, Samaritan is obviously a woman and one with a bad reputation, apparently. Um, Here's what Jewish writers of the day had to say about such such a situation. A man shall not talk with a woman on the street, not even with his own wife. Oh, my goodness. And especially not with another woman on account of what men may say. Daughters of Samaritans are considered to be unclean from the day they are born. Boy, I'm relieved. Last week, Todd Allen said, feel free to add your amen. I'm glad you didn't add an amen to that, all right? Um, Jesus didn't belong to that crowd. His attitude toward women was very, very different. Um, We have all sorts of New Testament references to that. We had women in Luke 8 who were supporting Jesus financially. Uh, Women were the first... uh, witnesses to the resurrection, we could be teaching Mary and Martha and so forth. There are just lots of examples of that. Um, when uh, Jesus was uh, spending time with women, I think it's very significant, he was never accused of immorality. He was called a friend of sinners, but they were tax collectors and people like that. Jesus didn't say, I'm going to witness to this woman, so I'm going to, woman, so I'm going to spend the night at her place. No, no, no didn't do that, and if the, if the Pharisees had any evidence that he was immoral, they would have used it. Jesus was never accused of that, and I think it's significant. And he starts off the conversation by putting himself in a place of need. Can you give me a drink? I've often wondered why Christians don't do that more often. We so often, as believers, come across as people who have all the answers, We don't have any needs. It's the unbelieving world out there that has the needs. Really? I found that admitting our own needs often opens up people to share their needs as well. And maybe we need to learn about that. Now, the gospel is good news for people like this and for everybody else, but this woman apparently was, was really in a difficult situation, having to come at noon and all that sort of thing. So Jesus offers her something positive, living water, to replace her sinful life. I mean, her life was pretty miserable. So Jesus offers her hope, what he called living water, bubbling up and so forth, never run dry. She would no longer have to depend on a constant stream of men for her fulfillment. She could get her fulfillment in Jesus. Now, women are treated better in our society now than I think when I was younger. It's a long time ago. Um, But I think one of the saddest aspects of looking back on my many years is that Christians have often lagged behind society in this area of of gender relationships. Uh, Too many Christian men seem much more eager to talk about submission of their wives than the responsibility to love them. Um, That's out of balance. Uh, Too many Christian men watch pornography, which demeans women instead of treating them as partners in the kingdom. Uh, Okay, there are 
Kathy knows how upset I get watching TV ads that treat women as mindless ditzes. And I just think, turn it off. But it sells things somehow. I don't know how. Um, okay, there are extremes on both sides. But we need to listen to Jesus here when we're talking about respect for a different sex. Now, I should say at this point, I am so grateful both for what Rebecca talked about in the General Assembly coming up about women in ministry, but we have got some wonderful women in ministry, Melissa Lothar, Denise Vogelsanger, Chrissy Hoffner, Kara Yoder. We've got people on the board. Thank you. You know, you're really good this morning because I was going to hope that you applauded and you did, so well done. Um, Okay, let's look at the difference in ethnicity, which was significant here. It's hard for us to sense how deep these problems were with Jews and Samaritans. I mentioned the slide about people going around, from going from Galilee to Judea, going around Samaria. Well, how about this for a local illustration? Let's imagine that you hated the Amish. You wanted no contact with the Amish, but you had to go from here to Philly. Uh, but you would have to avoid Lancaster County and Reading County. How are you going to do that? That's really difficult <laughs> because you have to go way north or way south. You know, Lancaster and Reading are pretty well dominate here to, to Philly. That's the kind of thing that was happening back then. So it was a major, major problem, okay? Now, in Luke's gospel, the disciples had the same problem. Jesus' own disciples. Look at this verse. Luke 9. As time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went to a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. That's where the temple was. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? What a wonderful attitude toward evangelism. But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. I mean, it's awful. But it's not the only place. In Acts 8, Samaritans apparently become believers. So what did the people in Jerusalem do? They sent some people to check it out. Is that really possible? Samaritans becoming Christians? I mean, this problem went so, so deep. So we need to understand that. Um, Verse 9 helps us here. The Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. I need to slow down here because this gets a little heavy. If two groups of people have very limited social contact, that inevitably leads to tension, to misunderstandings. And my personal sense is that we Christians have not done as well on this issue of ethnicity and race as we've done with the gender thing. Gender, we've done a little bit better, but the race thing, we're still struggling. One of the best ways to come over, the best ways to overcome ignorance and, okay, call it racism, is simply to spend time together with people who are different. We need white Christians to share with black Christians their fears of the inner city, you know, things like Black Lives Matter marches and so forth. White people get really anxious about such things. We need black Christians to share with white Christians their fear of the police, their fear of driving through white suburbs and things like that. They're concerned about housing that is not open to them. 
If black and white Christians who all follow Jesus can't break down these walls, the politicians will never do it. We have got to take responsibility as believers to address these things. Okay, most of you know Kathy and I spent 40 years in Africa raising people like Beth, and maybe we're a little more sensitive to racial comments that we hear. I thought coming back after 40 years, I was involved in the civil rights movement in the 60s. I came back and thought things will have changed, and sometimes I wonder. Um, we listen to our African-American friends. They all refer to the talk they have with their teenage kids before they learn to drive a car. Um, we talk about, we hear about questions that people ask black people about your qualifications for the job that they would never ask a white person. So we need to listen to each other here. And that's one reason I was delighted that last Sunday, Brantley Gassaway was up here talking about this Lilly Foundation grant with Messiah that involves Grantham Church, and it helps people to talk together, white churches, black churches, and some in between. Um, this past week, Pastor David and two other people, Brantley Gassaway and Kara McKinney, were on a sort of a shortened version of the Civil Rights History Tour. And Chris and Sarah Becking went there on a longer tour in June. Um, let me illustrate what I see as problems of racism right here, not sort of out there. Last year, Mechanicsburg. Uh, some of you know I'm a pretty avid tennis doubles player. And during the winter, I play with an African-American friend as my regular partner. And as we were walking onto the courts at West Shore Tennis Club, some stranger that we'd never seen before said to my friend, you're black and I'm white, and I want to beat you. And my friend said, uh, I'm playing with Rich. Yes, that's good. I'll be on the other side of the net because I'm white and you're black, and I want to beat you. We were a bit shocked. So we walked over to our opposite sides of the net, and my friend turned to me and smiled and said very quietly, you know we have to win. <laughs> <laughs> and we did. <laughs> We never saw the guy again. I don't know what was going on. I talked to the manager of the club and said, you know, reported what was going on. He said, well, if he ever comes back, we're going to have a talk. Well, he never did. A little further down the road in Carlisle, this goes back about five years or so, we, most of us remember the problems at Charlottesville, forever known now as the, pro the place that the Klan came in and the white supremacist group talking about you know, racism and so forth, and very embarrassing and very tense. A few days later, there was a, a rally in Carlisle for racial unity and reconciliation. Not political, not Republican or Democrat. Simply the community saying, let's work together because of the problems we're seeing. And I thought, well, sure, we can do that. And some Messiah students said, you know, you want to come along? I said, absolutely. So we drove down there. and. Okay, the people who addressed the, the meeting were the mayor and the head of the War College and Dickinson College people and so forth. But before that, we noticed two people with big signs, really, really negative about the whole idea of racial reconciliation. But one of these two guys had a big John 316 on his shirt. And I said, you know, somebody ought to talk to, to that guy. And one of the students said, yeah, you. 
So I did. I walked over with this student and said, look, I really must be honest, I don't like your signs much, but we've got something in common with your shirt. And so he goes into this, but I was an evangelist in New York City for eight years. And they said, whoa, 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 hang on. I don't like to play this holier-than-thou game, but I know how to do that. So I pulled my ace and I said, I was a missionary in Africa for 40 years. Oh. So he calmed down a little bit. But meanwhile, the other guy was literally screaming in my ear, just abusing me verbally. And later on, the Messiah student said, I was afraid he was going to hit you. Yeah, that was possible. It was pretty tense. But eventually, the guy, the John 3.16 guy, got so frustrated with his friend, he said, can you shut up and leave? I want to talk to this missionary. <laughs> the guy kind of calmed down. My point to him was that, is this what Jesus would do? It's a lot of the stuff I'm saying this morning, you know, like the woman at the well. Is this the attitude Jesus would have toward people who are different? And he calmed down, and we were having a pretty good talk, and then the rally started. I drifted off, and he was gone by the time the rally was over. I'm not trying to draw attention to myself so much, but we've got to do the hard things. We've got to talk to people who say they're Christians and don't act like it. Okay. Um, I'm not at all suggesting that Grantham Church members are racists. Please, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that many of us just need to be more aware of the tension felt by people who are different. Um, this, let me suggest several things that I think we can do. One, we've already talked about this civil rights history tour that a number of people here have gone on. If you've been on Todd Allen's civil rights history tour, can you raise your hand? Okay, there are people all across, okay? Welcome back. <laughs> Okay? Talk to these people. Go to lunch with them or something and listen to their experience of going on the Civil Rights History Tour. Secondly, be proactive at making friends who are different and listen to their stories. We're not real good listeners. Thirdly, read. Slide. Okay, there are tons of books out there. These are my two favorites. Jamar Tinsby has written kind of a history of the church and race. Both of these guys are evangelical Christians. Some of you have seen the movie, Just Mercy. The book is better than the movie, by the way. Um, the movie's worth seeing, but Harvard-trained lawyer and working for racial justice, the Equal Justice Initiative in the South. Uh, these are really good books to read, so that's my own sort of recommendation. Now, when Jesus, let's turn to the difference in faith. When Jesus mentioned the woman's marital history, you notice she quickly changed the topic. People often do that. That's a little bit too close to home, so where should we worship? Should we worship there or there? You know, let's get away from the married five times business. Um, but Jesus didn't let the woman go off on a theological tangent uh, about the geography of worship and all this nonsense. People had argued for generations about, you know, you know, do you worship in Jerusalem, do you worship in Samaria? The problem would probably not be solved at noon at a well in Sychar, right? So Jesus kept the focus on her need, not on the debates of the theologians, and he told her a time was coming when geography would have nothing to do with worship, and it was coming soon. Jesus pointed her to the truth, not what she traditionally believed, because that was not the same thing. 
Jesus was the source of her salvation, not her Samaritan tradition. And then Jesus says very clearly, I am the Messiah. You notice he hardly ever did that with the Jews, but he was away from the Jewish people here. He was with Samaritans, and he was much more open with them than he was with the Jews. Jesus was not just the Messiah for the Jews, he's Messiah for the Samaritans as well. And let's be clear that he did not commend her for her sincere search for the truth. He said she was wrong, and he told her where he, she could find the truth. He pointed to himself. So it's interesting, the woman began the conversation of thinking of Jesus as a Jew, then as a prophet, and finally as the Messiah. So. He talked about living water, and the Greek is incredible there. It says, you'll never, ever thirst again forever. It's kind of an over-translation, but that's what it says. And she responded to that. Um, Jesus urged her to follow him because he offered something specific. This was not theory, all right? He, people need to hear that salvation is more than just being declared righteous. That's true, but salvation means you can overcome temptation. All right? It's not just theory. Um, trusting in, in, in Jesus has consequences like power over temptation. It's like saying, come to the party. This works. Uh, and if you're not a Christian this morning, you need to come to Jesus <laughs> that, uh, show, to find out the gospel really does change people and has the power to do that. Now, so gender and ethnicity really made no difference to Jesus. Faith did. Faith had to be right. And so he talked about spirit and truth. So let's look at that just for a little bit before we close. What did Jesus mean by that? Well, historically, the Jews had one part of true worship, and the Samaritans had the other. The Jews had all the scriptures in the Old Testament, of course, and they were quite proud of that, and that's good. Their worship could be based on truth. But Jesus pointed out that they didn't have that all right, Matthew 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. By the way, Matthew 23 is a very tough chapter to read. It's all sorts of things that the Pharisees did, and sometimes we do too. But that's for some other time. So the, the problem with the, the Jews is that basically people didn't count. Their worship was joyless. Ah, but the Samaritans, the zealous people, Oh, they didn't care so much that they didn't know all the scriptures. In fact, they were pretty proud of that. Um, they were people who were not hung up with the old Jewish ways of doing things. They had spiritual zeal. So to them, their worship was that thinking didn't count. Their worship was mindless. So we've got Jews, people didn't count. Their worship was joyless. Samaritans thinking didn't count. Their worship was mindless. They're both wrong. They need each other. Neither group kept spirit and truth together, and we are told we must do that. Uh, Pastor Flowers was talking the last few weeks about a bounded church, there's the Pharisees, and a fuzzy church, there's the Samaritans. Still happening, hey? Um, we continue to struggle with such things. 
Some churches emphasize truth so much that their services are like funerals. Some churches emphasize spirit so much their services are like discos. So we, we need to listen to Jesus here that, that real worship must be based solidly on truth and be, cu- be, and be conducted in the right spirit. Um, thank you for the worship team who tries to do this, and I think they do it well. Um, most of us lean in one direction or the other with spirit and truth. Public confession, I was trained as an engineer, and I taught for 40 years. So I kind of lean toward the truth side of things, and I don't trust feelings as much as some other people. So I need to hear from people who trust feelings more than head. They trust heart more than head. Now, my plea, of course, is that uh, those of you who are better at feelings than, than the, the other kind of, the, uh, the kind of approach I take to art, uh, articulate this, uh, please have patience with me. And if you've got this balance just right, do let me know because it's really rare. <laughs> In this regard, I want to introduce a little quote from one of my theological heroes, the British Anglican John Stott on the slide here. Nothing sets the heart on fire like truth. Truth is not cold and dry. On the contrary, it's warm and passionate. And whenever new vistas of God's truth open up to us, we cannot just contemplate. We are stirred to respond, whether to penitence or to anger or to love or to worship. Think of the two disciples walking to Emmaus. This is Luke 24 on the first Easter afternoon while the risen Lord spoke to them. When he vanished, they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? They had an emotional experience all right that afternoon. They described their sensation as a burning heart. And what was the cause of their spiritual heartburn? It was Christ opening up the scriptures to them. That put spirit and truth together really well. Okay, so when we attend church virtually or here in front of me, Let's take both our minds and our hearts along. Don't check our brains at the door. (laughs) Don't act as if we need CPR. Um, There's no conflict between worshiping the Lord with both joy and clear thinking. That's what God expects of us. You know, I've sometimes wondered what the woman's experience was after meeting Jesus. We aren't told. I'm sure she messed up sometimes, like we all do. As someone much wiser than I once said, Christians may fall into sin, but they don't walk in it. They get up and go. And so maybe that was like her experience. But I was thinking, what about her first conversation with the guy she was living with? Boy, I wish I'd have heard that. But I'll try to think what it might have been like. I think it might have gone something like this. Honey, I met this Jewish guy at the well today. Really? Yeah, and he was really different. I mean, he seems to know everything about us, and yet he didn't condemn me. Well, that's something new and different. Well, yeah, different, exactly. He's different, but I'm different too now after I met him. And he's still at the well, and I'd really like for you to meet him. Oh, and I need to go back to the well anyway because I forgot my water jar. (laughs) 
This is how Jesus impacted people, vulnerable people. He ignored barriers. He loved people. We don't have to be a Samaritan or woman to benefit from that. Salvation is offered to all of us. And if you're looking for a closer relationship with Jesus, I've asked Pastor Melissa and, and Tom George, the deacon, to maybe be available after the service. I've got family here in Bethesda go off to Altoona to do surgery, and so I'm a little bit rushed this morning, but other people will be here if you would like to talk about in, that in more detail. Now, Pastor David always leaves us with questions for reflection. If that's the tradition, we've got to do that too. So number one, are you like the Samaritan woman trying to hide your identity from the Lord? Would you like that fear to end today? You can. Talk with Pastor Melissa and others afterward. Number two, do you avoid or fear people who are ethnically different? Or do you love them as Jesus did? That's a hard question. And three, do you divide spirit and truth, choosing one and not the other? If so, how can you seek a better balance? Let's pray together. Our Father, most of us must admit that we don't treat people as Jesus did. We prefer to be with people who are just like us. Yet we're thankful that in the story we looked at today, Jesus shows us how to overcome these differences. And we pray that you would help us to do that this week. We are so grateful for the hope that Jesus gave to the woman from Samaria and still gives to us. So we pray that would be our experience this week and in days to come. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.